In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. His wife was Elizabeth, a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were advanced in years. Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God in the regular order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. And at the hour of the incense offering, the whole multitude of the people was praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was greatly troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must never drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand before God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. This is God's word. All right. Um, I want to apologize for the slightly dyslexic mix-up there, um, because I think that might have been my fault. So if it was Mike, I'm sorry. Um, If it wasn't, there's nothing I can do. But if it was, I apologize. All right, you guys pray pray with me, please. Dear Father, we we thank you for another Sunday. Thank you for a day where we can gather with your people, where we can uh, come together as the church, in a church, um, recognizing that we are not the church, like, universal, not the whole church, just like Andy was talking to the kids about, but... We're just a tiny fraction of this beautiful family and community that you're growing all throughout time and all throughout the world. Uh, we thank you that you give us the chance to hear cool things about your word and things that will hopefully speak to where we are or even draw us into something better than where we are. And uh, I just pray that you would use these words, your words, to uh, strengthen weary hearts, to give us courage and to captivate us and to draw us into all the beautiful things that you have for us, and uh, that you would just give us food, spiritual food, that would give us energy and strength to continue to walk with you and to uh, do as you're calling us to. So Lord, please be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I think I, you know, Mission, mission's a cool spot because I feel like a lot of us are kind of around the same age. And so uh, I remember when the Harry Potter books first came out, like first, first came out. And I was probably like eight or nine. They, it was like this 
incredible phenomenon of like every time a new book would drop from J.K. Rowling, it was like on the news, there'd be like, you know, videos of these giant lines, just warehouses full of people waiting for these books to finally drop. And, uh, and it, was, it was crazy. And I think I was like, yeah, like I said, I was like nine or 10 when this stuff was first going on. When I was in fifth grade and I was 10, my teacher, who recognized how much all of her students absolutely loved Harry Potter, decided that she wanted, she wanted to uh, read maybe a chapter or two of Harry Potter to all the, to all the students in the last like maybe 30 to 45 minutes of class. Now, this was conflicting for me because I don't remember how close in proximity you guys were to the American church when Harry Potter came out, but it was a, a little, little controversial. And I, in my life, I had just started going to church. I had not gone to church until maybe a few months before this. My dad had just decided to bring the family back to church. And there's not a whole lot I remembered. We went to the chapel on base, Hope Chapel. We were, we were our preacher was basically whatever chaplain happens to be there at the time. And I don't remember the title of this sermon. I don't remember the main points that he made, but he said something like, such and such, Harry Potter is so bad. And I thought, all right, that's, that's good to know. I didn't know that. I'm 10. And so my teacher says this, and she says, well, John, uh, and she says, so we're going to start reading Harry Potter in class. And I go up to my teacher, and I say, hey, um, I don't really know what this means, but I, I don't think I can listen to Harry Potter because I'm a Christian and it's, I, I don't th I think it's against my religion. And she said, okay, John, well, thank you for telling me that. We're going to keep that in consideration because we want to be really respectful of your religion and not do anything that would make you feel uncomfortable or isolated. It's actually not what happened. She sent me to the library. Um, <laughs> Every day at the end of class, she just sent me to the library. And I remember there were some days, and this just reminds me that I've always been the John who stands in front of you. I would leave the classroom, and then I was afraid to go to the library because I'm like, I don't want to have to explain to the librarian, too, that I'm like, oh, I'm here because I was sent here because they're reading books that are against my religion in class. So I just sat outside. I just sat outside in the hallway just like, all right, well, I'll be ready be done pretty soon, I guess. And, uh, and that was super awkward. And I just remember, yeah, I've always been me. That's crazy. Um, so to the educators that we have here, give me a break. I'm 10, okay? Maybe don't isolate your religiously convicted uh, students. They probably don't even know what they're saying. I didn't. Anyways. So to this day, you know, 21 years later, I stand before you, 31, and I still have not read Harry Potter. I know, I know, hold on. And I'll, I'll, I'll add to it. I do not intend to. But listen, but listen, hold on. Hey, take it easy. Take it easy. Hold on. Listen, I do not intend to until, because my wife was glaring at me for a second, until we have kids. Because I want, oh, thank you. <laughs> Because I, I legitimately want to experience Harry Potter for the first time when I'm reading it aloud to my kids. Um, so I think that'd be really cool. Now, a lot of people at, the, at that time in, you know, American, Christian, everything is Satanist, demonic stuff, history. Like, they, they had genuine, like, really 
authentic concerns about what Harry Potter was. And, and I, it's not that I don't realize that there's magical things in Harry Potter, but the reason why I want to read it is actually because of these things, because of the, the magic and the, the intrigue and the, I don't know, the, I literally know very little about Harry Potter. <laughs> What's the, like, it's like the train station, but it's a wall. You have to walk into the wall. Anybody? Whatever. I don't care. Uh, Don't spoil it. I'm still waiting. All right. (laughs) But there's actually something on that is on the flip side of why people wouldn't read Harry Potter, which is why I want to read Harry Potter, specifically with my kids, because there's something about seeing a world that is beautiful in ways that our eyes can't currently see. It's this idea that beyond all of the world that we can currently fathom and understand and observe, there's something beyond the the curtain that is like incredible, that is captivating. Like I, I want my kids to read about something really deeply incredible that is beyond what we can see right now. I feel like that's an interesting way of priming them for what's real, what we really believe in as Christians, which is this kingdom of God idea that we see throughout the scriptures. You see, our, we, we, and we've talked about this a few times, like the, the culture that we have today, you know, we're, we're not really as religious as, you know, generations ago, centuries ago. We, we used to believe that, you know, if you had uh, three birds fly over your house instead of two, that it meant you were going to have a really good harvest that year. Like everything used to have profound spiritual value to the point to where it was kind of weird and superstitious. But now we're on the exact flip side of it where nothing has spiritual value. Everything is accidental. Everything is coincidence. Even you talk to a lot of, you know, people who, who look at the world around us, they say, yeah, it's just, it's, it's atoms slapping together and random explosions that formed life. It's, it's just like ooze and goo that eventually turned into, uh, uh, you know, organisms. And all of a sudden here we are, but there's no hand behind it. It's just chaos. It's just random. That's what a lot of people, that's where a lot of people are right now. However, I think it would be wrong to say that people aren't religious anymore. They've just redefined their terms. Instead of holy scriptures, a lot of people just look to the, the lessons around them, lessons from their family, lessons from cultural speakers, occasionally lessons from, I don't know, YouTubers, influencers, politicians. Instead of an afterlife, they believe in, the, in breaking through the pearly gates of the workforce into the golden paved golf courses of retirement. That's the afterlife. That's what you're fighting for. Here in Tucson, we even have a promised land. It's called Rita Ranch. <laughs> or if you're extremely righteous, Green Valley. And I, I, I've mentioned this before, I, I work in Green Valley, and I'm a hospice chaplain, so I'm kind of like the angel of death out there. <laughs> I have the unfortunate job of reminding those living in a secular paradise that there is actually something quite grander 
waiting for us beyond the afterlife that we've spent a long time working towards. We live in this world that's, I don't know, simple, predictable, observable, easy to digest. There's nothing beyond it. And that's the reason why I want to read Harry Potter with my kids. I want us to play Dungeons and Dragons. I want to eventually watch the Lord of the Rings when they're old enough to not fall asleep through them, Annie. (laughs) Not that she slept through them. I did. So that was, I want to clarify, I'm the one you shouldn't respect, not her. Here's the thing. I, I want my children to grow up already being captivated by a world where there is infinitely more than meets the eye. I don't want them to accept the lie that our world is cold and accidental. I don't want them to believe that heaven is an early retirement and a house in the suburbs. I want them to believe in extraordinary things, in remarkable things, and honestly, even terrifying things beyond what our minds can even imagine. Because as I said before, I think that will prepare them to learn more about our Christian faith, the Christian reality that we all in some way believe in, specifically the kingdom of God. So kingdom of God is a term that I'm going to kind of reference, and so I want to give a a really rough definition of it. So the kingdom of God is, it's a phrase that we see a lot in the New Testament. And if you're not familiar, the passage that we just read was the very beginning of one of the gospels. So it's the very beginning of this New Testament starting to unfold, which is God kind of unraveling his plan of how he's going to rescue a broken world that is distant and far off from him. So a a loose definition of the kingdom of God is God's kind of mission to insert himself into a world that has been like spiraling downward after constant rejection of the God that made them. He is reinserting himself into history, into time, and into space. And through his spirit, through his son, through his church, he's working that clock backwards into healing and something better. It's an ongoing process, an ongoing march, if you will, towards redemption that's transforming the world through these little tastes and glimpses of something greater. That's my rough definition there. The kingdom of God, as we see just in the text that Bobby read for us, is miraculous. We literally witness a miracle happening it's beautiful. It, it shows signs of better things to come. But it's also not safe. It's also not predictable. It's not retirement funds and 401ks and all that. It's more grand than what we've come to expect. So we're going to break this down into a few, into a few uh, just kind of different things we're going to look at. Here's the first thing we're going to look at is the appearance the appearance. Our passage said, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was greatly troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. A little bit about Zechariah. He was a priest. At the time, uh, to be a priest in the, in the Jewish kind of Israelite religion meant that you were, uh, you tended to the temple, 
which was this big, grand area that was kind of the, the neutral, like, like the central spot of worship. That's where the sacrifices were offered. That's where incense was lit. That's where they believed a, a part of the presence of God literally lived inside the Holy of Holies in this temple. Zechariah was a priest, which means that he would daily perform a lot of these responsibilities, these religious responsibilities that represented the Jewish people. He had a wife named Elizabeth. They were older and they didn't have any kids, which, you know, was, was a, a thing for people back then. Like they saw children as a blessing from God, but also it goes out of its way. The text does to say that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, were both good people. They were righteous. They followed God. They loved him. They cared for him. They, they had faith in him. They were following the laws and the commandments. So they weren't childless because they were in some way rebellious. They were childless because they were childless, unfortunately. At this time in the story, uh, they're, they're performing this kind of ritual where one of the priests is basically randomly selected to go inside the temple to light incense while the others would stay outside to pray. And this was actually a really big privilege that a priest would be able to do that. One, because to step inside the temple was literally seen as being able to step closer to the presence of God. And also because this was only a once in a lifetime experience. You, you didn't get to do this every time. And so Zechariah gets this privilege. He walks in, curtain closes behind him. All the other priests are out there praying. And Zechariah's, you know, just getting ready to consecrate. It's this very sacred, very spiritual moment. And an angel appears. Now, real quick, what is an angel if you're, if you're not familiar? Well, it's a little complicated because there's not a thorough like study of angels that we get in the scriptures. And honestly, the different times they're seen, there's different things said about them. It's, it's said a couple different times that they have faces like lightning. I'm not sure what that means. They have eyes like, like torches of scorching fire. Again, not sure. Some say they had, they had arms and legs that were furnished like shining bronze. Okay, all right, very, very thorough. Uh, some say they have wings. Some have a bunch of wings, like, like several pairs of wings, sometimes to fly, sometimes to cover their feet, sometimes to cover their faces. Speaking of faces, some angels have more than one face. Few angels have a face here, face here, face here. That's kind of freaky. So what we can say pretty clearly is that what, what Zechariah saw was probably a little unsettling. He did not think, oh, there's some guy in here. That's crazy. All right. That dude's just been chilling here, I guess. No, he had an appearance of something literally angelic, shining with the glory of something that lives in the presence of God. And he was just struck by it immediately. See, this is something that I, I kind of love about all these stories where there are these grand things that God does to get someone's attention in the Bible. 
All throughout the Bible, there are kings and prophets and priests and judges and all types of people who are circling around the faith of Israel. These are people who should be very familiar with God and who he is and what he does. And yet there's not a moment in the Bible, except for one that we'll reference at the very end tonight, who says, oh, hey, it's Gabriel. Guys, it's Gabriel. Oh, this is crazy. Oh, what's up, Gabriel? You got, got a message for me, man? What's going on? It's always like they saw the angel and they were terrified. Or a couple times they saw the angel and they fell over like dead. Because it's terrifying. Because it's not typical. And, that, and that's what's crazy to me about this story about Zechariah. Is he's a priest He's a faithful priest. He's an educated man. He knows the faith of Israel back and forth. But even the guy who should know what to expect really has no idea what to expect. If there was one person who should have been able to predict something like this, it should have been someone who's been very close to the religion of, Ju of Judaism for a long time, and yet Zechariah had no idea. It just shows that when it, when it comes to the unfolding story of God, even the people who are expecting it still don't know what to expect. And this is the wonder of the kingdom of God it's like this rushing tidal wave of new life and transforming new hearts and new heaven, new earth, this kingdom of goodness and this kingdom of judgment. Like, and, and this is what's just so interesting. Like when we talk about angels in church, it's, it's, it's like a fairy tale. It's like we as Christians who sit in church every, every week it still becomes so easy to think of angels like they might as well be mermaids. But it's actually really uncomfortable to think that as, as clearly as I'm standing in front of you right now, an angel appeared before this guy as he was just doing his, just doing his job. Imagine being in your workplace and walking into like a supply closet <laughs> and seeing an angel. Like this, this is meant to sound fantastical, but not to be fantasy. This is meant to sound absurd, but to 100% be real. And I think it takes time to really reflect on that, to actually feel like something otherworldly is happening right now something that is kind of shattering my understanding of how the world works is happening right in front of me. And it's talking to me. And in all these stories happening throughout the scriptures that we see, we see Moses just, you know, tending to some sheep and seeing a bush that's completely engulfed in flames, but is cool to the touch. And then it starts talking to him. We see Ezekiel having these visions of wheels and, and eyes and thrones and, and different creatures that he can't describe. Visions so vivid that he doesn't have the language to describe what they were. I mean, it's Paul hearing the voice of Jesus, a man that he had never met, but instantly knew who it was when he spoke to him. And then being struck blind 
It's these glimpses of things that they weren't really ready to see fully yet. Glimpses of things that none of us are ready to see fully yet. So let me ask, have you, have you ever asked yourself what types of things your eyes will see one day? Because we can, we can talk about the, the world and how they have this, you know, limited view of the, of the world around them and how they, ah, oh, they probably believe that the world created itself and, ah, oh, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in yada, yada. But honestly, like, do we actually wrestle with the truth that there are things that only some have seen that came pretty close to driving people crazy? Like, what does it mean to think that, like, our eyes will look at, like, unfiltered glory at some point in time? We won't just see one angel. We'll see probably tens of thousands of angels one day. Like, what does it do to think about that? Even those of us whose eyes don't work super well today, we can rest assured that we will see something wild. To witness these, like, eccentric realities of a world that is not cold or meaningless and where paradise is neither Rita Ranch nor Green Valley, the world that we actually live in full of glory, heaven and earth joining hands, the kingdom of God being greater than all the things that we've seen, it's unexpected even for all of us who expect it and it's guaranteed that we'll see something. And honestly, I think even with the people sitting here right now, there are stories of things, things that you've seen, things that you've experienced, dreams, visions, moments of that curtain being pulled back just half a millimeter and seeing something that you can't really put words to, but you know happened. Like, I mean, you know, Andy mentioned a couple weeks ago the story of the uh, Iranian family that kind of collectively came to faith because a little girl had a dream of Jesus. I mean, I'm sure some of you guys know this, but if you know anyone who's been in the mission field in the Middle East, dreams of Jesus are all over the place. Like these, these ways that God is like breaking through to make himself known in ways that are sometimes unsettling but to make himself known and to make his words, his message, his presence known. He will break through all kinds of barriers, even if it gives us a glimpse of something our eyes are not quite ready to see yet. That's crazy. Like, that's the only word I can think of. It's, I don't know, it's uncomfortable, to say the least. The bummer is that I, I've seen a lot of you know, faith communities try to like market these things. They try to market miracles. They try to market supernatural visions and experiences by manipulating people's emotion or, or their human psychology with smoke and mirrors. And honestly, it makes a lot of us, I'd say myself included, quite distrustful when we see anything that looks 
out of the ordinary. For a long time, I've, been, I've struggled to wrestle with believing someone who says, no, I saw something. I mean, I, I had a coworker when I used to work for Devereaux. This dude had one of the most like, just brutal, like, uh, just up and down experiences like with hardcore substance use and said that his breaking moment was when he was coming out of an overdose and he literally experienced Jesus coming into the room and cradling him until he came to. I could say, yeah, man, that sounds like a crazy trip. Sounds like your neurons were doing some wild things. I don't know, but hey, dream's a dream. I can say that if I'm just super uncomfortable with anything that doesn't look like what I'm comfortable with. But is that me just looking God square in the face and telling him what he can't do? Because that's it's not something I want to do. And I think, you know, we're, we're, we're talking, we're kind of priming this conversation of what it means to encounter as we get into the advent of Jesus being born in the next year, as we spoke about earlier. We're going to be talking a lot about encounter. So we'll have a lot of space to kind of process the different ways that God makes himself known to us. And, and, and hear me out, God makes himself known to people through YouTube videos, and God makes himself known to people through uh, nagging friends who, who won't stop telling them about Jesus until eventually the ice breaks. Like, God comes to us in all kinds of ways, some of them that look spectacular and some of them that look really plain. But I think we need to be careful of, I don't know, gatekeeping God's own hand and showing himself. Because again, these are reflective of a world that is not safe or predictable or comfortable, but completely captures who God is, which is he's not predictable. He's not comfortable. He's not safe. He is breaking something new. You know, I, I want to say one last thing about this idea of appearance and these little redemptive moments of pulling back the curtain is that they're deeply disruptive, you know, I was, I was reading about uh, the story. There's a story where Jesus travels to this small town. And in the small town, there's this guy who's possessed by like a bunch of demons. And this man is like known to the townspeople as like, oh yeah, that's Tom. He's possessed by demons. Um, and he's, you know, there's these stories of him, of him just like howling and screaming like an animal. Of him, him breaking chains when people try to restrain him. Of him, you know hurting himself constantly. Like there's all these horrible things about, about this guy. And Jesus goes, rips the demons out of him, sends them into a, a, a herd of pigs who then drown themselves. You've got to be like, what the heck is happening here if you're present for something like this? But what stands out is that the people of the town weren't like, oh my gosh, Jesus, you... <laughs> Congrat this is awesome job, man. You saved Tom. Instead, they were mad. They were like, yeah, that was Tom, but that was demon Tom. That's what he did, man. Yeah, it's a, uh, is this what you do? This, how, how dare you do this to him? How dare you change things? Now, again, if I was present and just, I don't know, sitting back on my porch watching this thing happen, if I saw 
40,000 demons get ripped out of a person and then a bunch of pigs jump off a cliff and drown themselves, I might think to myself, I kind of wish I never saw that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But again, these are these glimpses of something that we're not quite ready to see in its fullness. That's the kingdom of God coming forth and literally violently healing the brokenness around us. It's extremely disruptive. It does break our sense of comfort. But, you know, if you want to ask Tom, the guy who was possessed five minutes ago and now he's talking like a person and not screaming like an animal, I think that's a pretty cool thing to experience. The appearance was only part of this story, though. The next piece of it, of course, was the promise. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's so incredible to think. As a husband, Zechariah and his wife probably stayed up many sleepless, teary-eyed nights praying to God for a son or for a child. And as a priest, he probably spent many days praying with his fellow priests, with his fellow people, praying that his people would be delivered, that the world would be saved, that God would come to intervene. And in this single moment of divine disruption appearing before Zechariah, God would send him a messenger who would announce that both of these prayers were about to be answered simultaneously. Zechariah and Elizabeth, even in their old age, were going to have a son named John, who, for some of you who don't know, would become John the Baptist. And John the Baptist would be a prophet whose goal would be to prepare the people of God for Jesus' arrival like the trailer that comes before a movie. He would be calling the people of Israel to turn from their ways and to return to God because there was someone much better and much greater than him who was coming soon who would give them a message of the greatest redemption that had ever been known. The kingdom of God was coming the story of redemption, the story of better days, and God had invited his servant Zechariah to take part in it. I think it's important to reflect that when these kind of mind-shattering, miraculous, strange things happen, it's almost always to reinforce a promise or a, or a part of God's character to us. And these promises aren't just weighty doctrinal ideas. They're, they're here to meet us where we are. Zechariah was a smart dude. He knew probably all that there was to know about different elements of temple worship and, and different parts of the story of Moses and the story of Abraham. But at his core, he was a man who wanted a son 
And he was an Israelite who wanted his people to be cared for and for the broken world to be healed. That's who he was at the bottom and foundation of his heart. And that's what God came to speak to, to meet us where we are. Not just visions of, oh, this is pretty cool. Oh, oh, angel, bunch of wings. Awesome. Super glad I saw that. You want to grab some food? Like, no, it's something that appears to us, shakes our sensibilities, and then grounds us on something beautiful, something of one of God's promises. Because what was the message that the angel had for Zechariah? That God's going to give you a son that your son is going to be instrumental in turning the people of Israel back to God. And then something even bigger is about to happen. What he's saying is, in a sense, Zechariah, I have heard you at your weakest moments. I've seen the suffering of you and your wife. I've seen the suffering of you and the ones you love. I have heard your prayers and I've seen your tears and I'm here to make things right. That's why the angel can faithfully say, you don't have to be afraid. Because what's coming next, this promise, this good news, this kingdom of God is not meant to harm or to terrify us. It's to give us life. And it's not going to be safe and it's not going to be predictable, but it will keep us guarded and protected under the wings of God as we trust in him. And as we think about, you know, zooming out of this big story and thinking, well, what the heck is this for me, John? This is the promise that God has for each of us. That he sees the deepest longings of our hearts, not our superficial longings, not not our attic longings, but he gets to the longings at the bottom floor, at the basement of our heart, at the foundation of who we are, our deepest longings. Not just, I want more things, I want more experiences, I want more sex, I want more comfort. He meets us at the very bottom and says, you're lonely. Let me spend some time with you. Or I can tell that you're afraid. Let me tell you who I am so you don't have to be afraid. Or you're ashamed of yourself. Let me tell you a little something about forgiveness or you don't have any hope, do you? Let me, let me spend some time with you. When God meets us face to face, whether it's in a vision of wonder and spectacular lights or a YouTube video or a good nagging friend, he's using these things to communicate himself. And the way that he often communicates himself is through his promises, the things that he will do the things that he will do oftentimes in spite of us, not because of us. He tells us about this beautiful plan for restoration and for recreation. He invites us to join us. I'm sorry, he invites us to join him, but he doesn't hinge his successes on whether we can or cannot do something productively. And finally, in the story, we find Zechariah's response. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. 
And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand before your God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is kind of the final place that we find ourselves in any way that God presents himself. He appears, he has a message, and then there's the response, the response of his people listening to him. How will we respond to the promise of a world that is bigger and more captivating than the one that we've been sold? A world beyond Green Valley and into all of eternity. How will we respond to the good news that Jesus sees the deep hurts of our hearts and will help us? How will we respond to the call that we have to join in that healing, not just our own, but to help those who are in need, those who are poor, those who are stepped on? We have an answer from Zechariah. His response was kind of lousy. He doubted. And he was scolded for it. And, you know, God pulled out the remote control and hit the mute button on him and said, I don't want you to say anything until you see this baby boy that you didn't believe was going to be born. But my favorite thing about this is that Gabriel didn't say, oh, you didn't, you, you don't buy it? You're, you don't think it's going to? All right, well, shoot. I guess your wife won't have a son, which, hold on, means that no one's going to come to prepare Israel for Jesus. So when Jesus is going to show up, no one's going to, oh, great, great. Zechariah, you just ruined the whole gospel. He didn't say that. He spoke, he scolded him. He punished him. He, he, he disciplined him. And then he says this, because you, uh, you that, I'm sorry, because you did not believe my words, my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, Zechariah's doubts actually stopped nothing. And that's a beautiful, beautiful message for each of us. Because the honest truth, as I was asking those how will you respond questions, if you were like, I will respond in faith. I will respond in obedience, John. I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe for a little bit, right? Like, I think we all strive to respond the way that we ought to. But at a certain point, we're all going to be Zechariah thinking, I mean, my wife is kind of old. I don't know. Like, maybe, may, maybe this miraculous thing is not going to work out the way that God intends it to. Maybe what God is saying about uh, good news over me, maybe what God is saying about uh, erasing my shame or making better days for me, maybe I don't really buy it. We're all going to have those times. But fortunately... We're not pumping the brakes on anything that God is doing. God's promise is still delivered even in our weakness. That doesn't negate the responsibility that we have to respond in faith, but it does mean that when our faith is weak, because it will be, that God's not going to pull the plug and say, well, you've doubted me for the last time. We still have faith. But his love and his goodness and this tidal wave of good news that's coming is too strong to be stopped by the doubt of God's beloved. And honestly, one thing I 
thought of that I thought was just so interesting, too interesting to not mention, was that Zechariah was a priest. Zechariah was an educated man. Zechariah was an older man, full of wisdom, full of years, full of pride, close to the temple, like knowledgeable of the religion of faith. And when an angel appears, he says, I don't know if I buy it. The cool thing that we'll get into in a week or two is that very soon, a parallel story is about to occur where this same angel is going to appear and tell someone about a birth that's even more unlikely than this one. And it's going to be Gabriel speaking to a teenage girl by the name of Mary. And she won't have any doubt. It's beautiful how the faith of these little weak people almost puts to shame the wise It's like, you know, all the kids in the front row asking these banger home run questions, but also not a doubt in their mind about what's true and what's good. Theo just being like, heaven, no. It's about a new heavens and new earth. Theo, I'm gonna buy that dude a theology book. He should be writing one, honestly. But it's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see the faith of Mary in the face of Such an incredible sight. Let's consider the promises that God has. Let's consider what good news is breaking into the circumstances that we're currently in. Whether we're looking at just a hectic Monday that we're not psyched about, or we're looking to eternity, There's so much beautiful hope, and there's literally so much that we can't imagine waiting for us. It's good news. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, thank you for, um, yeah, I don't know, thank you for these stories. They've been written and passed down throughout time. Thank you that... uh, that you came before this priest and kind of called him out for not responding the way that he should have, but also that through this we get a glimpse of just your strong, perfect goodwill that even a, a doubtful priest could not stop something good from happening. And we thank you for the faith of Mary that we get to look at in more detail in weeks to come. This little teenage girl who had experienced so little of life, let alone very little of faith and knowing you, but trusted you and became a willing vessel and carried Jesus herself. What a beautiful thing. Lord, wherever we are in our lives, wherever we need hope, wherever we need courage, or maybe we just honestly, Lord, need that moment of just being struck with the awe of you, having that, having that curtain pulled back just a half a millimeter to remind us that this cold spinning planet is not just a cold spinning planet. It's, it's a temple. It's your place of worship. It's your place of presence. It's broken today, but tomorrow may be a different story. So uh, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us, and we pray for better days. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 
At this point, we're going to be transitioning to the next part of our worship. We're going to be worshiping in three ways. Uh, we're going to worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper, which I'll get back to in a second. We're going to be worshiping through uh, musical song. Literally in the Bible, we see people, God's people, called to sing, like lift your voices and sing and, and sing praises of worship to God. And so we're going to do that together when the band comes back up. We also worship through giving. We believe that giving is something that we're called to do generously and that God basically says, I'm giving you everything that you have. There is not a cent in your bank account that I did not give to you and that we should faithfully be returning a portion of that to him out of gratitude and not obligation. And so uh, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Uh, this is our time to confess, but also just our time to connect with God over whatever we feel may be nagging or kind of gnawing at us at this point in time. And then after the prayer, we invite everyone, even those of you who maybe for the very first time are putting just that tiniest amount of faith or hope in good things to come in Jesus, to come and receive the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is bread and wine. It is kind of a throwback to Jesus on the night before he was crucified, when he was sitting and having dinner with his friends. And he encouraged them that whenever they gathered to remember him by eating bread that would symbolize his broken body and drinking wine that would symbolize his spilled blood. And that when we eat that bread and when we drink that wine, we are both remembering the great love of a God who was willing to sacrifice himself and suffer on our behalf and to experience that love through the bread and through the wine as well. And for anyone new, we do have gluten-free bread and grape juice. Uh, only the finest of grape juices at Mission Church. So uh, if you will, I'm going to pray for us. We'll have two minutes of silence. Uh, the band will come back up and join us and uh, invite you guys to receive the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, Lord, we acknowledge, as we often do, that we are always falling short of your goodness, Lord. We are always falling short of what we, what we want to be doing. And uh, we recognize it doesn't take, doesn't take long to look back through the thoughts that we have in our head, our actions, and the things that we do, that we are, uh, we are not worthy of you. We do things that offend you. We do things that hurt ourselves. We do things that hurt other people. And so, Lord, we come to you to confess our sins, recognizing that we are falling short of you, but also that you have promised to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. That because of what Jesus did on a cross and through taking his life back through his resurrection, that we have no fear of condemnation, that all of our sins, all of the wrong things that we've done can be washed away, and that you are giving us strength even today through the Holy Spirit to walk us into better ways, to help us to repent and to grow out of the ways that we've chosen to cope with our just broken state. And so, Lord, would you help us to pray now and would you remind us always of your great love and of, your, and of your, uh, just how much you treasure us and care for us. And we thank you, Lord, and we ask, us, ask that you would now help us to pray.